Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's me, Melissa Canchola. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. What we got here to start with is this is Gospel Encouragement preached by Vodi Vatnam. Thanks for listening. Praise God for the gospel that is read, for the gospel that is sung, the gospel that is preached, for the gospel that is shown to us in the ordinances, the gospel that we so desperately need, that we need to be reminded of, by which we live, this gospel that is our everything. And as we continue to walk through the book of Romans, I'm going to say something that may be difficult to grasp at first, but bear with me for a moment. Romans is one of those places where if we're not careful, we'll still miss the gospel, even though it's all over every page. Again, I say, it's one of those places where, if we're not careful, we'll still miss the gospel, even though it's on every page. Because oftentimes we, we, we get confused. There are, there are two things that, that we do whereby we miss the gospel. We don't know what the gospel is. We talked about that on last week, what the gospel is. And if we don't know what the gospel is, then we, we think only those places where we're talking directly about um, salvation or conversion or justification proper, only then are we really dealing with the gospel. Only then does that have anything to do with the gospel. And we dealt with that, as I said, on last week. But there's another way that we miss the gospel, especially in an epistle like this. What happens is the writer gives us or lays for us the the foundation of the gospel and goes on to give us numerous implications that are based upon the foundation of the gospel that he has already laid. But if we then treat those implications or those imperatives in isolation from the gospel, then all of a sudden we begin to negate the gospel itself. Because there is a difference between what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces. Let me say that again. There's a difference between what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces. And if we mix those two things up, then we've perverted the gospel. Let me see if I can explain further. What the gospel requires is quite simple. The gospel requires and faith. That's it. That's what the gospel requires. You remember, the gospel is a proclamation of the work that God has done, this redemptive work that God has accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. That's the proclamation. The proclamation is that everything that we've seen in the scriptures, 
since the first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 finds its ultimate fulfillment, completion, and wholeness in the person and work of Jesus Christ who has come and in his active and passive obedience has both satisfied all of the requirements of the covenant of works that the first Adam did not, and in his passive obedience has taken upon himself our penalty, thereby allowing God to be both just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Jesus Christ. That is the proclamation. The response that that proclamation requires is repentance and faith. And that's all. That's what the gospel requires. Now, what the gospel produces is fruit, obedience. That's what the gospel produces. So how do we mix these up? Well, if we go to those places where the author is talking about what the gospel produces and treat them as though they're what the gospel requires, we have just added something to the gospel. So we, we, we go and, and we read something in, in the scriptures and we read something in the New Testament and, and, and it says to us, well, all men know that you're my disciples, for example, and you have love one for another. We ought to love one another. Now, is that something the gospel requires, or is it something that the gospel produces? That's something that the gospel produces. What does the gospel require? Repentance and faith. But it is him who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But here's the problem. For most of us, from the top down, from from those of us who are preaching to those who are listening to those who don't know Jesus Christ at all, here's the problem. The problem is that for the longest time in our culture, for those of us who preach, most of us were taught preaching in such a way that you absolutely confuse what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces. And as a result of that, most of us live our Christian life like this. We're looking at what the gospel produces, and we're fighting with every fiber of our being to do it on our own. Or questioning our salvation or questioning our devotion or feeling like we need to rededicate our lives or whatever because we, we, we just haven't done enough. Now, is, is that to say ignore those imperatives? No, we don't ignore those imperatives at all. But we have to understand the distinction between what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces before we can understand how to approach those imperatives. It's important here as we come to this sort of transitional point in the epistle. On last week, we looked at really that first paragraph in 1 through 7. The last two weeks, we dealt with 1 through 7. And here in 1 through 7, we get this picture 
of the gospel. Paul lays out this brief understanding of the gospel and what the good news is. Well, on next week, we will look at the most powerful and influential statement about the gospel in the whole Bible and in all of history. When we look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it is the seminal statement about the gospel and the power of the gospel. And between those two, we have this paragraph where we see this compulsion in Paul's life. And here's one way we could look at this compulsion in Paul's life. We could look at this and we could say, see, see how Paul lives his life based upon the impact of the gospel. You need to do that. Or we can say, see what the gospel rightly understood and rightly applied produces in the life of the believer. What's the difference? If we confuse what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces and preach the imperatives without the indicatives, then what happens is the service is over and you and I leave with a list of 10 or 12 things that we've just got to do better. But if we understand the gospel rightly and the difference between what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces to happen in us is twofold. Number one, there ought to be areas in our lives for which we praise God because of what he has produced in us by virtue of the gospel and also a greater dependence upon God because of the things that we see in our lives that have not been fully saturated by and bathed in gospel thinking so that we all at once praise God for what he has done and acknowledge our utter dependence on him to continue to see it through to completion. That's way different than what we're used to. That's way different than what those of us who are used to preaching are used to preaching. And that's way different than those of us who are used to listening to preaching are used to hearing. We're used to coming to the scriptures and going away with a pull myself up by my own bootstraps mentality to be better than that. I have to do better than that. I have to work harder than that. And, oh, by the way, the other thing that it produces in us is this dependence upon ourselves. So on the one hand, whereas a proper understanding of the gospel leaves us with that balance and that tension between here's what God has done in me and I'm grateful, and here's what I recognize still needs to be produced in me so I'm dependent, what the other does is this. Here's what I've accomplished because of my devotion to God to this point. Here, and, and here's how much harder I need to work in order to complete what I've accomplished. And, oh, by the way, here's why I'm so much better than my friends, neighbors, and family members, because I do this and they don't, and I don't do that and they do. Can't say amen. You ought to say ouch right here and right now. That's what it produces. It produces pride, arrogance, and boasting. And a life lived in the flesh. But instead, look at this compulsion that Paul has 
in this next paragraph, beginning in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because of your faith, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that... I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Here's what we have here. This is the compulsion in a man's life towards the proclamation of the gospel. We'd say that this was like God's calling on his life to preach the gospel. But it looks way different than what we're used to, does it not? Compulsion that Paul experiences both toward the gospel and what we would call this compulsion toward mission looks a lot different than what we're used to. It sounds a lot different than what we're used to hearing. Three things I want you to notice here. One, I want you to notice the God-saturated speech. The God-saturated speech. Listen to what he says. First, I thank my God. Let's just count these. Here's number one. I thank my God. You got one with me? There's one. Okay? Through Jesus Christ, there's two for all of you. Because your faith, by the way, there's a third one that's assumed, but we won't count that one because it's your faith in whom? Jesus Christ, is proclaimed in all the world. For God, there's three, is my witness, whom I serve with all my spirit in the gospel of his son. There's four. We got the second person in the Trinity mentioned again, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, there's five. In the first two lines, he mentions God. Five times and another time indirectly. God-saturated speech. God-saturated language. And we're not even counting what's already happened in the paragraph before. How often he mentions God. How often his lips part to sing God's praise. We're not talking, by the way, about someone who just has sort of a cultural, perfunctory tendency towards speaking the name of God. There are cultures like that, and there are, have been times like that in history where it has just been more common for people to use speech that was more heavily laden with God talk. Uh, but it is interesting, is it not, that we now say good luck as opposed to Godspeed or God be with you. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting to say, you know, I will do this or I will do that as opposed to if God wills? 
Isn't it interesting that we say, you know, luckily so-and-so happened or fortunately thus-and-such happened as opposed to providentially? Isn't that interesting? Just in our regular, ordinary language. Here's what's more interesting, what's more fascinating, if you will. Not only has there been a movement away from this sort of God-saturated language in that regard, but we now have a culture that still has God-saturated language, but it's on the other end of the spectrum. So now there are still very common phrases with God or Jesus Christ in them. However, they are curses and blasphemies. It's not that God's name is no longer on our lips. It is simply that our attitude toward God has gone from one of praises from our mouths in God's saturated speech to curses from our mouths and yet still God's saturated speech. But, but this is not just sort of the cultural norm. Notice the gospel is being proclaimed. The gospel is moving forward. People are being saved. This is a Jew of Jews from the tribe of Benjamin, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. He did not grow up saying Jesus Christ, y'all. Amen? So this is not just, well, you know, it's my culture. It's the way, you know, I was raised in Tarsus, and in Tarsus we all said Jesus. No, nobody used this name, but Paul can't stop speaking it. He doesn't assume it, but his speech is saturated with God talk. So no, it's not cultural, nor is it hypocrisy. Nor is it hypocrisy. There are some things I just can't watch. There are just some things that I just can't watch. I, I don't watch television a lot, but there's some things I can't watch. Even if I did, I just couldn't watch. One of them just happened not long ago. It's the Grammys. I can't do it. There's no way I can do it. I just, I just can't. I just, I, I just can't. I would break stuff, you know. For somebody to stand up and use semi-pornographic language and do erotic, more than semi-pornographic movements in their so-called dance, wearing semi-pornographic clothing, and then win an award and stand up and thank Jesus. I, no. Scared God will strike them dead and it will come through the TV and get me. But it's sort of perfunctory, is it not? Award ceremonies and things of that nature. You make a film that's blasphemous or sing a song that is the most grotesque expression of sin imaginable. And when you're awarded for it, you stand up and thank God, thus dragging his name into the filth and mire and mud of what you just did, as though somehow he partnered with you in the process. Well, that's, that's not what's happening here. This is God-saturated language. Because, see, there's a God-saturated life. He's no longer his own. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. 
He opens his mouth. He doesn't speak on his own behalf. He doesn't speak his own words. So out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. You know why you and I do have God-saturated language? Because we don't live God-saturated lives. The gospel was everything for Paul. The way he thought about his life, his future, his everything, was through the lens of the gospel. The way he spent his time was viewed through the lens of the gospel. And by the way, and we say, well, yeah, that's easy. You know, if you're a, a, a missionary, you're a full-time missionary, and you got somebody supporting you on the mission field, newsflash. Paul went places and worked. He worked a job. So even, but he worked a job in order, in order that he might work for the sake of the kingdom. So Paul did not have this gospel-saturated life because somebody paid him to spend all of his time saturated in the gospel. The contrary. Paul worked with his hands, and he worked in order not to be a burden, we find in Thessalonians, for example. He worked to be an example to them. He worked not to be a burden to them. And yet, although he got up every day and worked in order to support himself, still his language was saturated with the gospel because he did not define himself by his words. He defined himself by his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. His life was saturated with the gospel. See, we, we've experienced this, this cultural norm where basically what happens is we, 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 we come here and this is where we do church life. And when we leave from here, that's where we do real life. This compulsion that Paul experienced in his life led him to live the exact opposite. He went out and did the other stuff out of necessity so that he could do the stuff in here because that's what he was compelled to. That's what he was compelled to. Nor did he argue with that. That was normative, by the way. Let me just put that footnote in there. He didn't argue that that was normative. He argued that he had a right to be supported from the gospel. Amen. Not only is there God-saturated speech, but there's God-saturated prayer. Look at this prayer. We don't get a picture here of his prayer. This is, this is not the prayer. But in this portion of the letter where you see the thanksgiving, he mentions enough and about the nature of his prayer and his understanding of prayer that we see that even it is God-saturated. Look at what he says. First of all, there's thanks to God. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. So there's God-saturated prayer. How do we pray? We pray to the Father in the name of the Son and in the power of the Spirit. That's how we pray. Prayer is offered to the Father in the name of the Son. So he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. So first and foremost, we see that it's God-saturated prayer because his prayer is about thanking God. I thank God for all of you. Note this. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In other words, 
Paul says, let me give you a glimpse into my prayer life. First of all, I'm a man who's grateful to God. When I pray, it is a prayer of thanksgiving. I'll never forget. I, I, I remember exactly who it was. It was Tony Evans, but I don't remember the particular message or setting. But I remember Tony Evans talking about prayer and using this illustration. And he's, as he's talking about prayer and teaching on prayer, he said, you know, here, here's what most people's prayer sounds like. God, give me, give me, give me, give me. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Bless Aunt Susie. Give me, give me, give me some more. Amen. For most of us, that's our prayer life. Our family, oftentimes we go to eat. We will pray for our server. And so sometimes we'll, we'll stop our server and say, hey, we're about to pray for our food. Is there any, you know, way in particular that we can pray for you as we pray for our food? That's something that we remember every time that we sit down to eat, especially you know, when there's six kiddos and four of them five and under, sometimes there's a whole lot of other stuff on the mind besides remembering to go through all of the things that we normally go through when we sit down to eat. Amen? But oftentimes when we remember, we ask, you know, we're about to pray for our food. Um, so anyway, in particular, we can pray for you. You know, the most common answer that we get, that's very kind of you, but no thanks. Everything's okay. In other words, if there was some area in my life where things weren't okay, it'd be great because that's what prayer is for. But because right now things are going smoothly, I don't need God, therefore I don't need to pray. I want to crawl up under something right now. He says, I thank my God in Jesus Christ. But, but, but then notice what he's thankful for. He says, I'm thankful that your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Just think about that for a moment. Paul says, one of the things I thank God for is the fact that your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Can you imagine that? Do you pray like that? I'm just going to confess, that, that, is, that is not the normal tenor of my prayer. Lord, thank you so much because I heard today about the faith of such and such a church that's being proclaimed in all the world. Thank you for the work that you're doing there and that your name is being magnified because of the faith that is emanating from that place. But when you have a gospel-saturated life and God-saturated prayer, what would excite you more than a group of believers whose faith is magnifying the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? But if I live a me-saturated life, the only thing I can even think of to pray is, God, I need God. I want God. Would you give? God, do you remember what I asked for last time that you haven't given me yet? Not only that, but look at what he says in other places. It's not an isolated incident. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I thank God for you because of the grace that God has given you. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. I'm grateful to God for what I see the gospel producing in you. Why? Because the gospel is the most important thing in my life, not me. The gospel is the most important thing in my world, not me. So there is nothing in my life, there is nothing in my world that brings me more joy than to hear that the gospel is being proclaimed, that God's grace is being poured out, and that his people are being known for their faith in him. This humbles me. This absolutely humbles me. And yet there's more. He calls God as his witness. He says, verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing. I mention you always in my prayers. God is my witness. God knows this to be true. I'm not making this up. This is real. God-saturated prayer. And then finally, listen to this piece, he appeals to God's will. Notice what he says at the end. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Today, you know what that would sound like? God called me to go to Rome, and I'm just believing him for getting me to Rome. But the apostle Paul says, my prayer is that by God's will I get there. Not ignoring the fact or hiding the fact that he has the desire, but recognizing because of his God-saturated language and his God-saturated prayer that it is not up to him. It is up to God. Listen to what James says in James 4, 13 to 16. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. But in Paul's God-saturated language, it's not the way he speaks about this compulsion that he has to go to Rome. Finally, his God-saturated desires. First of all, look at this longing that he has. Verse 11. For I long to see you. Why? Because, because, it's, because it's what I want. 
I, I long to see you. Why? I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. By the way, he defines that. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I'm so glad that he did that because there are some people who believe in this old idea of impartation, that somehow one individual can impart onto another a particular spiritual gift. First of all, he uses the, 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 the singular here. He didn't say, I want to impart to you spiritual gifts, but I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. Not only that, but he goes on to explain what he means by that, that spiritually we may encourage one another, that I may encourage you, and that you may be an encouragement to me. That, that is my desire. Not that I'm the be-all to end-all and that you're in desperate need of me and I can come there and fix you, which sounds a lot more like the modern missionary mindset, does it not? Amen? No, I, I, I want to be there. I long to see you, that we might be mutually encouraged by one another. Because remember, I've heard of how your faith is being proclaimed throughout the world, and I thank God for what he is doing among you. And I desire to be there. I long to be there because I do believe that there are things that I can impart to you and that there are things that you can impart to me. We will be mutually benefited and mutually blessed. Secondly, he wants to reap some harvest. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I love that. That goes back to the God-saturated language. I've often intended to come to you, but thus far has been prevented. Paul's not just talking about circumstances here, because Paul believes in the providence of God. Paul believes that God is sovereign. So everything that has come upon Paul, Paul understands, and we know this through reading the rest of his letters, Paul understands that all of this comes to him from the hand of God. So here, Paul is balancing again this idea of his desire to get to Rome and the fact that he is utterly and completely dependent upon God to bring it to pass. So he says, I've often intended to come. I wanted to. I wanted to put it on my itinerary. I wanted to get there. But I've been prevented. God has not allowed it. That's why earlier on, what does he say? My prayer is that by God's will, I'll be able to be there. In order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Here's what's beautiful. We see this compulsion of his, and he wants to reap some harvest among them as well as among the other Gentiles. Here's what's, here's what's different than what we normally think about when we talk about missions. Because normally in, in our setting and in our sense, and let me just time for true confessions here. I've been part of some of these services where, you know, you go and, and there's a, a – a, Big, you know, conference and uh, big youth evangelism conference, I remember. Statewide youth evangelism conference. These big things that different states have, especially in Southern Baptist life. And they'll invite somebody to come preach at the state evangelism conference. And at the state evangelism conference, you know, they, 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 they want the gospel pre- Well, let me back up. They don't really want the gospel priest. They want the plan of salvation priest and a bunch of people manipulated in any way possible to come to the front and register a decision so we can go back and say, how many people made a decision. But, so anyway, they want that to happen desperately. But one of the things that also 
was often desired, is for people to come forth and acknowledge a call, the ministry or the missions. They had the big missions conference. And at the end of the big missions conference, there is this huge call. If God's calling you to missions, then you need to come. First of all, I don't see a call to missions anywhere in the Scripture. Amen. A Christian missionary is a redundancy in terms. Amen. All of us are called to proclaim the gospel. Whether you do it here or in another location, you're doing the same thing. First thing we've done is we've created this second, this different class of people, okay? They're called missionaries. They're a different class of people, and they're called to go somewhere else and proclaim the gospel. That's the first problem. Here's the second problem with that. The second problem with that is there are all these people who believe that they're in this other class of people who've been called to go to other places and proclaim the gospel, and that somehow only when they get there will they be able to unleash it. So you have a number of people who are saying, God has called me to proclaim the gospel to Muslims in the Middle East. God bless you, but here's what I want to know. What are you doing in your neighborhood? Well, well, no, no, my, my calling is to the, really? No, Paul says, I want to reach some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. By the way, that as well as among the rest of the Gentiles is not someday I'm going to reap a harvest among the Gentiles. That as well as among the rest of the Gentiles is I'm already in the process of reaping a harvest among the Gentiles right here and right now. And one of the things that excites him about Rome is that there is a parallel between what God has obviously called him to do and to be and what's going on in Rome. So it's not just that, you know, going to Rome sounds real good. It's not just that it would make you, you know, sort of this first-tier, top-flight, super spiritual person. If you say, God's called me to go to Rome, okay, now, now, it's, now it's, it's Africa, you know, called me to go to Africa or wherever. Well, the Middle East used to be Africa. Now, you know, the flavor of the month is the Middle East. God's called me to go be a missionary in the Middle East among the Muslims. Really? Why are you here telling me? You had a passport? No, I'm waiting for my support to come through, and I'm waiting for my... Really? You don't have a passport. You've never been over there. You done any language work? No, but when I get in the field, then I'll do... Really? But there's a call of God on your life. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means nothing. It means there's something that sounds really good to me, and I'm going to claim it as my own. It's not what Paul's saying here. He acknowledges his desire. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a desire. Praise God for those desires. But there's a difference between here is my desire and if God's wi- and if God wills, this is what I would love to do, which is what you're hearing here from Paul. It's gospel-saturated life. Here is my desire. And if God's will is for me to do the same, this is what I want to do. I've wanted to do it long beforehand, but God has prevented it from happening. And there's a balance. There's a huge difference between that and here I am, 
and I know that this is the calling of my life. Why? Because when I was 12, I walked an aisle, and I said it out loud to somebody. Therefore, it's gospel. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Because now all of a sudden there's somebody, let's assume that there's a person, in, and there is a calling of God and a compulsion of God on a person's life to go and proclaim the gospel. And all of a sudden, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, when this person had this compulsion on their life, everything was happening in Africa or everything was happening in China. So 20 or 30 years ago, this person stands up and says with their mouth, God has said that he's called me to be a missionary and to go to Africa, or he's called me to be a missionary and go to China. Now, 30 years later, there's a need and there's an opportunity and an open door in the Middle East. That person's on the mission field in the Middle East, and you got one or two choices. Either the calling of God and the compulsion of God was for them to proclaim the gospel, and he ultimately showed them where in the Middle East, or they lied or God lied because they're in the wrong place. How about this? God-saturated speech, God-saturated prayer, God-saturated desires. My desire is to proclaim the gospel. There is a passion in my life to proclaim the gospel among unreached people. I don't even know where it comes from. And if God should will it so, I would love to plant my life and lay it down doing precisely that. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. But even in that, Paul has evidence to back up his compulsion. Look at what he says. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to fools. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why does Paul want so desperately to go to Rome? Why does Paul want so desperately to be among the Gentiles? Turn with me to the left, and let's look at a couple of things. And we'll wrap this up. Turn me to the left and look at Acts chapter 13. Actually, go with me to 22. And then I'll find my place back over there in 13 with Paul and Barnabas and their calls to the Gentiles. Go to 22. Look down at 28. It's Paul, the Roman Tribune. Look at verse 27. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. Why Paul to the Gentiles and not Peter? Real simple answer. 
simplest answer is because God said. Here's another one. Paul's a Roman citizen, born a Roman citizen. Well, does that mean that because Paul's a Roman citizen and God's called him to the Gentiles that he turned his back on the Jews? Well, turn with me to the left again. Look at Acts. Let's just start in 17. See if we can find a little pattern here. Acts chapter 17. Look there beginning verse 1. Now, when they had passed through 13 is when he and Barnabas professed this call to the Gentiles. We're through with you guys. We're going to the Gentiles. 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now come over with me to verse 10, and let's go to Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Then we find Paul in Athens. What happens in Athens? He's reasoning in the marketplace and in the synagogue with the Jews. In chapter 18, we find Paul in Corinth. Where is Paul in Corinth? Paul is in the synagogue on every Sabbath, reasoning from the scriptures with the Jews. So here we have Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, and some look at that and say, well, all of a sudden, Paul has turned his back on his own people. Folks, when we finally get to Romans chapter 9, there will be this amazing statement where Paul says, for the sake of his own people, the Jews, he'd rather himself be cut off. And in chapter 11, where he says, no, God hasn't turned his back on them. I'm one of them. Evidently, he hasn't. Here I am. And yet... He says, I'm under obligation to these Gentiles and to Rome. Why? Because God in his providence had given him things that the other apostles didn't have that made him suitable for the task. And yet... It was not as just simple and pragmatic and straightforward as, well, you have this, therefore you go do that. Remember the language. There is a compulsion. There is a desire. But only if God wills. <laughs> I want to do it. It makes sense for me to do it. But only if God wills. I, I believe I'll be there. I want to be there. My goal, my desire, my passion is to preach the gospel in Rome. That's not the only thing that God can use. So there is this balance, this delicate balance always in the gospel-centered life, recognizing that God is at work, that God is calling men and women to himself, and that God uses us 
recognizing that God has called us as those who are saved, those who are bought with a price, to open our mouths and to announce this good news. But that it is God and only God who can make a dead heart alive. Recognizing that there are places where it just might make sense for us to be. There are places about which we're passionate. There are sometimes people groups about which we are passionate. There are sometimes opportunities that just light us up unlike anything else. But we cannot presume upon God. We must live in accordance with God's will and recognize that we live in accordance with God's will. And let me show you the difference. Here's the difference. We already talked about this. On the one hand, here's this compulsion that I have, and I believe this compulsion is from God, and so I just announce God's will on his behalf. Here's God's will. I'm announcing it on his behalf. Next thing you know, I end up in another place because God's bigger than me. You know what happens with some people? It's mind-boggling. There are some people who are in the process of being used mightily by God. The gospel is advancing. Their life is bearing much fruit. Their work is bearing much fruit. And yet they're miserable because they're holding on to what they presumed to be God's will way back when. You have Paul's attitude. It changes things. What's your compulsion? What's your passion? My compulsion and my passion is X. Always wanted that. Always prayed and asked God for that. And yet you didn't end up doing it. No, I didn't end up doing it. By God's providence and by his grace, he saw fit that I would end up doing this instead. And it's okay, because I believe that that work over there is going to get done. I still have a passion for it, so maybe God's desire was just for me to pray for it and to undergird the work through lifting it up in prayer. But to God be the glory. I'm expendable. Is that your attitude? I don't say that so you can go work it up, by the way. Remember where we started? This is not Paul's attitude because he worked harder than you and I to get this attitude. This is Paul's attitude because this is what the gospel does when it gets a hold of a life. So what's our prayer? God, help me to know the gospel, to embrace the gospel. To live gospel, that the gospel might get a hold of me like this, that this fruit might be born in me. And when I look at my life, I don't see God-saturated speech like this. 
grant by your grace that I might bathe my mind in the gospel so that out of the fullness of my heart, my mouth would speak these things. I do not have God-saturated prayer like the God-saturated prayer that I see here. God, by your grace, grant that I might take my eyes off of myself my own needs, my own wants, and my own desires, and have a bigger, broader kingdom view so that the prayers that I pray would not be isolated and limited and so narrowly focused on myself and the here and the now, but that somehow I would so rejoice in you, I would so rejoice in the gospel, I would so rejoice in your work that my prayers would even overflow in thanksgiving for the blessings of others because of the evidence of your Christ. So that even my own passions and my own desires would be submitted and surrendered to you and to your will. And that wherever you place me in the grand scheme of things. I would bear much fruit, and you would gain much glory. Regardless of whether it ends up the way I want it or not. This is what a compulsion toward the ministry of the gospel looks like when we get the gospel. God-saturated through and through. Completely and utterly. Does it mean we no longer have passions? No. Doesn't mean that at all. Does it mean that our, fake, our, our speech becomes fake and forced? No, didn't mean that at all. You read this? And perhaps for some of you, you didn't even notice it until I pointed it out. How many references in his speech there are of God because there's nothing fake and there's nothing forced about it. When the gospel gets a hold of us, this is what it does. That's my prayer for you. And that's my prayer for me. Especially for those of you right here, right now, today. You've never gotten this because you've never gotten the gospel. And there are some of you in this room, and where you are is you've absolutely confused what the gospel requires and what the gospel produces. And you've been working, some of you have been working for years, for years in order to try to manufacture that which is produced by the gospel. And you've had some successes in behavioral modification paired with an absolutely rotten-to-the-core culture that makes you look better than you actually are. And as a result of it, you think you're doing pretty good. But the fact of the matter is, all this time you've spent trying to manufacture what the gospel requires, you've actually been trying to manufacture what the gospel produces. You can't manufacture that at all. And you have never ever done what the gospel requires, which, by the way, is also which God and his sovereignty produces. What the gospel requires is repentance and faith. 
and you have traded repentance and faith for human effort and trying to be better than most people around you. And if that's all you got, you will die and go to hell. Because it will never be enough. You will never appease God. You will never satisfy God. And all you have to look forward to is his wrath poured out on you. That's it. What is required of you is repentance and faith. Turn from your self. Turn from your sin. Turn toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your only hope. Believe that he is who the Bible says that he is. That is your only hope. Cast yourself upon him. Cast yourself upon God's mercy. Beg God for the forgiveness that only comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the obedience that he offered on behalf of his people through a life that never sinned and the death that you deserved. Embracing that is what the gospel requires. You do that, and here's the beautiful irony. You do that, and the gospel begins to produce those things that you never could manufacture. And all of a sudden, your life that used to be a roller coaster of measured success because you tried really hard, followed by huge, tremendous failures again and again and again because you don't do it, right? You get to trade that in for a life that every once in a while looks back and says, wait a minute, my desires have changed. My passions have changed. My yearnings have changed. My speech has changed. And to God be the glory. Great things He has done. Believe on the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. Get off the merry-go-round. Stop trying to produce yourself what is at best a cheap imitation of that which only God can accomplish in its fullness and in its majesty. Would you pray with me? Father, as we bow before you, we say that we are indeed a grateful people. That's only true of us when we view the gospel right. When we don't, we're not at all a grateful people. We're people trying to work and appease your wrath 
uh, efforts that are born in sin and shape and iniquity. We're a people running hot and heavy to keep the hounds of hell at bay. All the while, running further and further away from the one who says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Make us a grateful people. Grant us eyes to see. Grace to understand. Faith to believe. And when you've done so, grant us a compulsion to share. Whether here or in lands far away. And we'd be compelled to share because of the greatness of the gospel and the magnitude of our gratitude over what you, through it, have done in our lives. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. It's the foundation. This is Ken Ham, author of the book on millions of years and church compromise, Six Days. Did you know every major doctrine of Christian theology is ultimately grounded in the history in the book of Genesis? Think about it. Why are we sinners? Why did Jesus need to die? What is marriage? Are we male and female? And the list goes on. To fully answer any of these questions, you need to go back to the history God's given us in Genesis. That history is foundational to our doctrine. 
And Genesis is also foundational for understanding biology, astronomy, geology, anthropology, and more. The Bible's history provides a framework for interpreting the world around us. And as we'll see this week, Genesis is so important. There's so much more to learn about Genesis, Doctrine, and more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Be encouraged in your faith at AnswersRadio.com. From the man who brought you teaching like this. For the Bible tells me so, and this is where our trouble began. And like this. Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments because those aren't your commandments. Andy Stanley is back, and this time is just like the other times. God loves you more than God loves his commandments. Except Psalm 138, too, says he is exalted above all things, his name and his word. It is an act of love that God condescended himself and gave us his commandments. Deuteronomy 4.8 says, What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as the law of God? His law is a revelation of his holy character. Romans 7.12 says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But we broke God's law, and through his law we realize we deserve judgment for our sin. So God sent his son, Jesus, who kept the law and died in our place. By faith we are forgiven, and his law is written on our hearts that we may keep it. In John 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Those who love God love his law. Those who diminish his law and teach others to do the same, Jesus said they're in big trouble. When religious leaders use the law of God to manipulate people made in the image of God, Jesus was quick to remind them that they were on the wrong side of God. And Andy Stanley should be really concerned about that when we understand the text. Earlier in our study of prayer, I made mention that our prayer life is intimately related to the providence of God. And we talked about how it's God's provisions that we are praying about and for when we entreat him uh, in our communication of prayer. But when we look at the doctrine of divine providence, we recognize that God governs the entire universe and all things in it, and that he is sovereign over everything that takes place. And as soon as we begin to wrestle with the sovereignty of God over his creation and really examine the fine points of the doctrine of providence, one of the first questions we encounter is, well, if God is sovereign, and if he ordains everything that comes to pass in some sense, what use is there in praying? Why should we pray at all? I get that question all the time. And, uh, and of course, the simple answer, the easy answer, which doesn't satisfy too many people, is that God not only ordains the ends of the universe and of human history, but he also ordains the means to those ends. And just like he sovereignly has a plan of salvation that he is... Uh, Unfolding in history, right part of the way in which he works out his plan of redemption is through the preaching of the word. It's God who brings the increase to the preaching of the word, but he uses that means 
for his end. And so, therefore, we have a responsibility in light of divine sovereignty and in light of his providence to be engaged in preaching. Well, the same thing can be said for prayer. God works in and through the prayers of his people. And so it's not that the New Testament says, well, God is sovereign, so you can just go back and, and put up your heels and take a nap and don't be engaged in preaching or in praying or in any uh, activity. On the contrary, it's because God is sovereign that we get so excited about the whole role of prayer because in his sovereignty, he has so designed his plan of salvation as to work through the prayers of his people. And that's why the Bible again and again encourages us, not only encourages us, but commands us to be actively involved in prayer. Well, then the question comes, well, do you mean then, R.C., that prayer changes God's mind? I get that question a lot. Look at that. Does prayer change God's mind? I said, well, if we ask the question in that manner, obviously to ask that question is to answer it. And the only answer I can give to it is not simply by saying, no, prayer doesn't change God's mind. The only real answer I could give to that question is, of course not. What could be further from your imagination than that your prayer or my prayer would have the power or the influence to change the mind of the Almighty? I mean, just think about that for just two minutes, and you will see that to ask the question is to answer it. Because what would have to happen for God to change his mind? What kind of a view of God do we have when we assume that God has worked out a plan and he has his plan A and he's about to implement this plan that grows out of his perfect knowledge of his absolute wisdom and his total righteousness and integrity. So he's utterly incapable of having an evil design and he's incapable of having a foolish plan, isn't he? And so he has his plan A, and he's going to implement it, and then all of a sudden something he hasn't anticipated takes place. You begin to pray. And you say, well, God, could you please change this plan a little bit? I would prefer that you do it a different way. Have you considered this, and have you considered that? And suddenly you're God's guidance counselor, and you get him to change his mind because you persuade him that his first plan was not a good one. Or you give him information that he lacked before you talk to him. Now think about it. What kind of a God do you have if you think that you have to inform him of the details of what's going on down here? Well, the scriptures tell us that the Lord knows what you need before you ask of it. And what's the conclusion? Therefore, you don't need to bother to ask. Isn't that amazing? That the Father, who knows everything about you, he knows every hair in your head, he knows every thought in your mind, every word that is going to be even formed on your lips, he knows what you're going to say before you say it. There's nowhere that you can escape from his presence. He knows you inside and out. 
knows what you're going, what you need, but he still says, come and tell me what you need. Now, beloved, when he does that, that is not for his benefit. It is not for his education. And it's not for his edification. Who is it for? The answer is obvious, isn't it? When he asks us to come and tell him what our concerns are and our needs, he's inviting us into the sacred presence of the Almighty in heaven itself and to say, come and talk to me for our benefit. Because we walk away from that communication, from that experience of speaking our needs and our concerns before the Lord, encouraged and at peace because we have been with him in that discourse. But let's not flatter ourselves to the place where we think, that our wisdom is greater than his wisdom, or that our knowledge is such that we can give him information that he didn't previously have. Well, again, when I give that kind of an answer to people, to the question, does prayer change God's mind? And I say, no, it doesn't change God's mind, because God's mind knew what you were going to pray before you prayed. And that knowledge was factored in to his uh, plan all along. Well, then you say, well, again, that sounds like it's all programmed and there's no reason to pray. Well, let's ask the question another way. Prayer changed the mind of God. But does prayer change things? Does prayer have any impact on what actually comes to pass? And the answer to that biblically is yes, and not just a simple yes, but a by all means. Let's take a moment to look at uh, uh, James's teaching on this subject in the fifth chapter of his book, beginning in verse 13. We read these words. If anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, that it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, first of all, you have to understand something about the kind of literature that I just read from this book. James, the book of James is called the only book that fits the genre or the uh, literary category of wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It's very Hebrew in its orientation. It, you don't get long, abstract, developed arguments in James. Rather, you get, for the most part, aphorisms, short, pithy statements that incorporate truths that are given without all the detailed qualifications that you might find in the didactic literature, for example, in the style of the Apostle Paul. So you have to be careful. 
when you read this. Because some read it and says, well, wait a minute. He says, the prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise them up. As if this were an absolute promise to every inquiry. We know in the New Testament that there were the prayers of the saints to which God said no. For example, by inference, we'll take a look at what happened when Peter was thrown into prison and the disciples gathered together to pray fervently for Peter's rescue. You remember that event? And as they were praying, there's a knock at the door. And somebody goes to the door, opens the door, and sees Peter standing there. And what, what happens? Closes the door in his face. Said, Peter's ghost is out there. <laughs> I mean, God answers the prayer, and when the answer to prayer is right before their eyes, they still don't believe it. But there is where we see how the early church prayed for the release of Peter, and God answered that. But the same narrative tells us about the martyrdom of James. Are we to believe that the church, that the early uh, leaders of the church didn't pray for James? We're we're told about, in Paul's epistles, of those who had been sick and had not been healed. Even Paul talked about how he prayed several times for relief from the thorn of the flesh, whatever that was. And God's response to the apostle was what? My grace is sufficient for you. You see, sometimes God says no, even when we are sick. And we, but at the same time, what James is encouraging is he's saying, hey, uh, we understand. That's a given that God doesn't always say yes. But don't miss out on the opportunity. Pray for the sick. Pray for those who suffer because God does answer those prayers. God does heal the sick. He does uh, relieve our suffering. But it's not cast as an absolute guarantee. If that were the case, I mean, keep in mind that every Christian who lived in this world before, let's say, just to be on the safe side, 1880, has died. Because Christians die. Not just unbelievers, but Christians die. And when Christians get sick, there are always Christians that pray for Christians that get sick. And at some point, the Christians die. And that was true of every apostle in the New Testament. There is no absolute guarantee that Christians are going to escape suffering, pain, and disease, and so on. We know that. But nevertheless, we still are to be encouraged because there's a massive impact from that prayer that God does uh, at times uh, heal people and restore them and also alleviates their suffering. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no. Now, one of the things that's really misappropriated from this text is that James said it's the prayer of faith that will save the sick. And so we've had a whole theology emerge in the popular culture associated with so-called faith healing. So that if you are not rescued from your malady and delivered from your disease, then obviously the problem is you didn't have the faith. And if you have true faith, you'll never be sick. You'll always be cured and so on. God always wills healing. You hear that kind of theology. You just have to name it and claim it. 
and so on. This is such a gross distortion of the total picture of what prayer is supposed to be and do in the Bible. I've had people tell me that if you pray for somebody and you say, if it be thy will, O Lord, please raise this person up, that that is a sin. It's an affront against God to say, if it is God's will, because God always wills that. So wait a minute. If it is a lack of faith to say, if it be thy will, what does that say about the posture of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane? The greatest teacher we have on how to pray is Christ himself. And when he was faced with his great passion, his ultimate suffering, that none of us can imagine what it was like to have the cup of God's wrath set before him. We can't imagine. And he, in agony, sweating beads of blood, is on his face before God in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, Oh, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Believe in Jesus' part. And he hastened to add, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, which is also mentioned by James. Those two little words, Deo volente. Don't say that you're going to do such something next week or next month or next year without saying at the same time, Deo volente. God willing, I will see you next week. God may not be willing. God may take me between now and then. Or God may put me on my back and incapacitate me so that the plans that I have prepared for next week will not come to pass because God doesn't will it. You see, faithful prayer, true faith, what faith is in its essence is trust. And the prayer of faith is a prayer that trusts God for the outcome, even if he says no. That's what Jesus teaches us in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So if you want me to take that cup, I'm going to trust you while I'm drinking the cup. That's the posture of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And so, again, we go back to the principle, the premise I've been repeating, that when we pray, remember who it is we're talking to. Remember who it is whose will is sovereign. And God's will does not always agree with my will. And aren't you glad? Because if it did, that would make me God. And I guarantee you, I would be an extremely poor substitute for the one who already holds that position. So saying, if it be thy will, is not an act of unbelief. It is an act of trust, trusting in God and in his will. Nevertheless, having said all of that, again, James will not allow us to retreat into fatalism where we just say, case or all, what will be, will be, and I don't have to be engaged in serious prayer. But he goes on to say, the fervent, effectual 
prayer of a righteous man avails what? Everything? No. But it avails much. And that answers the question, does prayer change things? Yes. A whole lot of things. Does it avail for anything? Yes. It avails much. But again, he doesn't say the cavalier, casual, insipid prayer of an unrighteous person avails much. It's the fervent prayer that avails. The fervent prayer of a righteous person, a righteous person relatively speaking. So what about fervency? Well, it's not that we have a Richter scale that measures the emotional intensity of every prayer, but fervency means fervency means praying with with some degree of passion, and that passion should be in uh, proportionate relationship to the severity of the need and the seriousness of the thing. It's not that we just scream and yell and carry on in church on Sunday morning so that we can exhibit passion over. Who's going to win the football game that afternoon? Passionate prayer should be fitting serious and severe needs. Now, we see another commentary on the significance of the fervency of prayer in the parable of the unjust judge, or sometimes called the parable of the importunate widow. You remember the story. Jesus says there was a judge in a certain city who regarded neither God nor man. And there was this poor woman who had been wronged, and she came to the gate seeking justice. But the judge had no time for her. He was too busy. He didn't want to be bothered with her. But she kept knocking at his door, looking to be heard. She persisted in her prayer until finally he couldn't stand it anymore. And just to get her off his back, to get rid of this pest, he heard her case and delivered her. And what does Jesus say? What's the point of the parable? Jesus doesn't say, oh, okay, just like this woman pestered this corrupt judge until she finally got what she wanted, so you have to pester the unjust judge who rules heaven and earth until you can finally get a hearing. That's not his point. His point is this. If... Even corrupt judges in this world, from time to time, will hear somebody's prayer. How much more will the true judge of heaven and earth, who has no corruption in him at all, hear your prayers? And he asked the rhetorical question, will not God vindicate his elect and cry out to him, Day and night. Again, Jesus is talking about the efficacy of prayer. In fact, at the beginning, we're told, and Jesus taught them a parable to the end, what? That men ought always to pray and not faint. That was the point of this parable. That's the point of this series that we want to emphasize what Jesus taught in that parable, that we ought always to pray and not faint. And we, if we feel from time to time 
on the edge of fainting, if we feel like we're about to, to give up, chances are we have been lax in our prayer because there is a corollary between prayer and courage, prayer and hope. So the next time you're thinking of fainting, remember that the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous person avails much. And it is a mandate, but again, it is one of the greatest privileges that God has given his people that we can come to him where no one else cares and nobody else wants to listen. He cares and he will listen. Praise God for the gospel that is The Genesis of Marriage. This is Ken Hand, an editor of the powerful new resource, The Gender and Marriage War. So who defines marriage? Paul said, many people today believe the Supreme Court of the United States defines marriage. But marriage wasn't invented or defined by humans. It was created by God and defined in Genesis. God created two people, one man, a male, and one woman, a female and brought them together in the first marriage. This was affirmed by Jesus in the gospel and by the apostles in their letters. Yes, God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. But sadly, our culture has perverted that in so many ways. If we want to understand and defend biblical marriage, we have to start in Genesis. Learn more about the books written by Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com and all kinds of free teaching by Ken is available right there at AnswersRadio.com. John 3, 16 through 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. To condemn means to sentence as guilty, and that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to seek and save the lost, to destroy the work of the devil, to give his life as a ransom for many. When he comes again, it will be to judge the living and the dead. Whoever did not worship him as Lord will be consigned to hell, a sentence that is on them even now. See, Jesus did not need to come and condemn the world because we're already self-condemned. Whoever does not believe in the Son of God has condemned themselves. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains. On him. Not that God puts his wrath on him, it remains on him. We are all, by our nature, deserving of wrath because we have wicked hearts dead set against God. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus, who took the wrath of God on the cross. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whoever believes in him is not condemned by God or anyone, but is loved. They are forgiven their sins and have eternal life when we understand the text. Number three on our list is Matthew 18:20. It says, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Usually, I'll hear well-meaning Christians quote this verse to imply that because there are more than one of them gathered, then God will be among them somehow, maybe in a more powerful way. <laughs> Number three on our list is Matthew 18:20. It says, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Usually, I'll hear well-meaning Christians quote this verse to imply that 
because there are more than one of them gathered, then God will be among them somehow, maybe in a more powerful way. I think this is something that is just brought up in prayer and people are just used to bringing it up and used to saying it, but I don't know if it's actually been considered as being correct. The thing is, is that, I mean, is, is God just not among you if you're alone? Is he less? with you if you're by yourself. What this verse is referring to is when there are corrections in the church to be made. The verses preceding this one are speaking about uh, confronting a brother or sister. And when you do this with another witness, then God is among you. So there was an Old Testament law that they were following about this, where there are two or three witnesses to witness something. And it was for accountability purposes. Number three, The transgender train just keeps plowing through our lives in every way possible, and the latest to cave to its ideology is American Girl. It's supposed to be a smart girl's guide, apparently. Let me read some of it to you. Some people don't feel like a girl or a boy inside, which is totally okay. People in this group are usually called non-binary and might use a pronoun like they instead of he or she. If you haven't gone through puberty yet, the doctor might offer medicine to delay your body's changes, giving you more time to think about your gender identity. And if you've already gone through puberty, a doctor can still help. Studies show that transgender and non-binary kids who get help from doctors have much better mental health than those who don't, which is not true. That's demonstrably untrue. Apparently, they also have a race and inclusion American girl which I'm sure is going to teach you how wonderful white people are. There's just no amount of can. The transgender train. Saying, like, you were grafted into this. Not replaced it. You were grafted into this. What? The true Israel of God. He just argued that you're not truly Israel if you reject Jesus as Messiah. There's this true olive tree, this true Israel, and you Gentiles, you were grafted into this thing. Wild, but now you're in this thing. Mm -hmm. And so don't be arrogant to the ones that were cut off, these mm -hmm. physical Jews who reject Jesus, their transgression cuts them off. Like, you're part of this real tree now. So people say, like, oh, you don't think they're the chosen people of God, so you believe, like, you know, replacement theology, the church replaces Israel? Where? What? I can't stand that language. You forget that I idea. can't stand it because yeah. it doesn't have anything to do with replacing Israel. It has to do with there's one covenant people of God throughout right. history, right. and the church is merely the continuation of that in the internationalizing of God's promises right. to bring about his kingdom to the ends of the earth. It's not about replacing. It's about all of us being grafted into the same vine, and we're all being fed by the same root, and that root is Jesus Christ. I believe, that, I, I believe in a grafting theology, not a replacement mm -hmm. one. One reason you can't just think of Jesus as a great teacher is that Jesus claimed to be more than that. You'll remember at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think that I am? And Peter answers on behalf of all of them, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, you're right, God has revealed this to you. And you can even see the tremendous truth claims about Jesus in the shape of the gospel. Jesus is an amazing teacher. And so the gospels have things like Matthew 5 to 7 that contain the Sermon on the Mount. But think of it, a third of the synoptic gospels and up to maybe a half of the gospel of John focus on the last week of Jesus' life. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come to teach. He came to die and to be raised again from the dead because he is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world.
Male and female, this is Ken Ham, inviting you to follow our growing Answers in Genesis YouTube channel. This week, we've seen that Genesis is foundational to all our major Christian doctrines. And here's another one, gender. Yes, our culture is very confused about what it means to be a man or a woman, or if there are even men and women. There's confusion everywhere, especially within the younger generations. But God's word gives clarity, beginning in Genesis. You see, we aren't self-made people able to shape ourselves in our own image. We were made by God in his image, and he created us male and female. That's his design for us. No, there aren't hundreds of genders to choose from. There's just two, male and female, determined by biology. Yes, Genesis is so foundational to our Christian faith. Discover more about Christian doctrine, theology, and more when you visit our website of AnswersRadio.com. A robust doctrine of providence. I can imagine some folk, and, and this may not have been the intent of this question, but I can imagine some folk, and they're sensitive, and they've been watching maybe the news and maybe too much of it. And they've seen things and they've read things and, and it's upset them and now they're fearful. And they're fearful maybe in a way that Christians ought not to be afraid. I think there might have been some of that during the last two years um, in the world where people weren't even sure what they were afraid of anymore, but they were just afraid. And I think you need a robust doctrine of providence that God is in control. He orders the end from the beginning. He orders not just good things, but evil things. Um, I was, is this week I've been talking about Peter and the Pentecost. And Peter preaches that sermon. He, he, he tells his fellow Jews, who, and this is just six weeks after the crucifixion, he, he, he tells them, it was you by wicked hands who took him and slew him. But they were guilty. Some of the people listening to Peter were there, shouting uh, for Jesus to be crucified, crucified, crucified. But it was all by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge. They were responsible for their actions. But none of it happened outside of the decree of God. God knows the end from the beginning. God, God orders our lives. He holds us in the palms of his hands. How many times in the Bible does God come and say to his people, do not be afraid? There's a book in it somewhere. There are, there are dozens and dozens of occasions when God comes to his people when they're in trouble. And he says, do not be afraid. If we have God, if we're in a right relationship with God, we have nothing to fear. That doesn't mean to say that trials don't come. That doesn't mean to say that wars may not break out. It doesn't mean to say that we might not be on the brink of World War III. I, I have no idea. I, do, I don't know. But I do know this, that God... Uh, God is in control. There are, no, there are no blind spots. There are no dead zones. You know, you, you, the, the, there are sections in America where you travel and your phone doesn't work. And you look at it and you haven't got a signal. There's absolutely no signal there. There are parts of South Carolina that I go to. It's absolutely the dead zone. There's no signal. And, they, and they say to me, you know, you have to climb that mountain over there. It's not a mountain, it's a hill. But you have to climb that hill over there and then you might get one or two bars. There are no dead zones as far as God's providence is concerned. You, know, you, can't, you can't drive up I-4 and then at, at junction 28, 
through Junction's 32, God isn't in control. It, it, it's, it's Satan's territory. No. He's in complete and utter control. I was in another country recently, and I was sitting outside a temple with uh, two other guys, actually from different religions. They were talking about how all three of our religions were fundamentally the same, just kind of superficially different. Finally, I just I spoke up and I said, it's almost like you guys picture God or whatever you want to call him at the top of a mountain, and we're all at the bottom of a mountain. I may take this path up, and you may take this path up, but in the end, we'll all be in the same place. And they smiled and they said, exactly, you understand. I looked back and said, well, what if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to find our way up to him. He actually came down to where we are. And they said, well, that would be great. I said, this is the difference. What we find in the Bible is this story of a God who has not left us alone to try to find our way to him. He has come to us and he has made the way to himself through Jesus. And Hamas, not the only two people groups at war. This is Wretched Radio. As we watch missiles being lobbed, we would do well to recognize exactly what that skirmish is, because whilst it is a land war, Paul told the Ephesians it's a spiritual battle. And so it is what we are seeing in the Middle East. Yep, it's a land war, but it is most certainly contrary to what President George W. Bush said. It is a religious war. You'll recall after September 11th, our president, who apparently didn't take the time to read a history book on the religion of Islam, proclaimed it's a religion of peace. Historically, it is most certainly not. It is a bellicose religion, and they have been waging war against everybody in their region for centuries. When did this skirmish begin? Let me suggest to you, it goes back to Abraham's time. Do you recall the story of Abraham and Sarah? Supposed to have a baby together, Sarah got a little impatient, gave Abraham her maidservant, Hagar. He gets pregnant with the bondservant, and they bear a son whose name is Ishmael. And in Genesis chapter 16, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar. Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you'll call his name Ishmael. The Lord has heard your affliction. He Ishmael shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. You say, what does that have to do with Islam and Judaism and Christianity? Well, if you would ask a good Muslim, they would tell you that the heir of promise is not Isaac. It is Ishmael. The descendants of Ishmael are the Arabic people. Please note, not every Arab is a Muslim. The majority are, and the Muslims who are Arabic would point to Ishmael as their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, not Isaac. And so in the Middle East, you see a people group, the Jews, who would say, oh, no, the son of the promise, it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. Not so in Islam. And they would say that it's Abraham, Ishmael, the Arabic people, and the religion of Islam. And this description by the angel of the Lord in Genesis 16 has been playing itself out now for centuries. Furthermore, Islam is determined to wipe 
out Israel. Since 1948, they have been making an intense effort to get Jewish people out of a territory they believe is theirs, which of course was originally the Jewish people's, but we seem to forget that part of history. Nevertheless, this is yet another assault by Islam, the sons of Ishmael, against the sons of Isaac. In other words, it's a religious war. Furthermore, don't forget, it is Islam's intention to subjugate the entire world underneath the Prophet Muhammad to bring in their understanding of eschatological events. It is a religious war. And I would suggest to you, we're having one of those right here in the good old U.S. of A. And you say, wait a second, nobody's, nobody's bombing America. You're right. Not at the moment. But I would still make the case that we are experiencing the same. One day they're not going to dig up a ask a good Muslim. They have been making an intense effort to get Jewish people out of a territory they believe is theirs, which, of course, was originally the Jewish battle that is taking place between religions. And you say, who are we talking about here? Evangelicals and, and some sort of like the Hindus? No. I would suggest to you we are seeing a religious war between Christianity and everything else, everything else, whether it's secularism, whether it is a religious system. But for the sake of simplification and an understanding of history, are we seeing a war between Christianity and paganism? You say paganism? Well, that doesn't seem to be that overt. Well, hold on. Let's do a little history lesson and go back in time and recognize that Western civilization prior to the ascendancy of Christianity was pagan. They were the gods. Now, by the way, please note, all earthly sort of gods, these are earthbound characters for the most part. They were not transcendent deities. They were earthly. Nevertheless, they were worshipped for centuries, and it was Christianity that ultimately pervaded the darkness, brought in the light, and pushed paganism for the most part out not totally but for the most part and what we are seeing right now is not a progression and the progressives would tell you oh we are progressing no we're not we're regressing to what paganism let me share with you a quote from 1939, T.S. Eliot, he was delivering some lectures, and he said that we are at a fork in the road. 1939, we're at a fork in the road where Western civilization will either be, I don't like to use this word, um, I was going to say dominated, but that has some <laughs> militaristic language. It'll either be basically informed by Christianity or paganism. That was 1939. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book called Pilgrim's Regress. You know Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote Pilgrim's Regress. John, the protagonist, finds himself in Escropolis. It's a Greek word that means ugly city, where the boys look like girls and the girls look like... When was this written? Was it the 50s this was written? The boys look like girls and girls look like boys, and everyone acts obscenely in their avant-garde rejection of Puritanism. Scandalized by what he encounters, John objects only to be shouted down by one of the residents. We have got over humanitarianism and prudery. 
In other words, we have done away with Christianity. This has been predicted now for a long time. Western civilization at a fork in the road, it does appear that that fork is splitting. And one of the times is Christianity. The other one is paganism. Let me take you back further in time. This is from an article, First Things, Louise Perry. The headline of her article, we are (laughs) repaganizing. By the way, this woman isn't a professing Christian, nor is she pro-life. Nevertheless, she's a fair enough historian to recognize, whoa, we're, we're going back. We're becoming pagans again. A poem from a Scottish poet. He said they'd found a brothel on the dig he did last night. I asked him how they know. He sighed, a pit of baby's bones. A pit of newborn baby's bones was how to spot a brothel. While that is a more recent poem, it is talking about a time when paganism ran rampant. A paganism that women and children were abused. That really is one of the starkest signs of a great nation or not. How does a nation treat its women and children? Hmm. How do Christians treat women and children? Now, I know the feminists would bellyache, oh, pregnant men in the kitchen. Okay, that caricature aside. Now, take a look at how women are treated in China. Why is it that they're, I think we're at 54% male, 46%. Why? Because women are not esteemed as valued or valuable as men. India, the Middle East, Islam, a sign of a great nation is how they treat their women and children. Archaeological excavations of ancient Roman sites. This is from an archaeologist. First, you find the erotic statuary. And then you dig a bit more and you find the male Infant skeletons, that's fascinating. Male, because the males were of no use to the keepers of Roman brothels, whereas the female infants born to prostituted women were raised into prostitution themselves. And we're returning to that, abortion. And it is seen rampant in America. Now, interestingly, Did you know that most of the abortions that take place in abortuaries around the country, um, one day they're not going to dig up baby's bones because they simply put them into the trash and burn them with other medical waste. Women being utilized, being sexualized, children being murdered and butchered. What we're seeing right now in the United States is a spiritual war. There is a battle. It is between light and darkness. It is between Christianity and paganism. And the only way to win this battle is spiritually by propagating what results in more Christians. The gospel. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening. And... Bye for now. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.